Father, we come to you this morning in Jesus' name, and Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters that, God, we'd have hearts and minds to receive your word. Lord, this is an incredible picture. Uh, This chapter from Abraham and Isaac's life are amazing. It's it's very difficult. It's very beautiful. Uh, It's very instructive. And so, Lord, we we don't want to miss what your word says. We don't want to miss what the Spirit has to say. So let scripture speak to our hearts, and then God, help us to receive it, not just as intellectual information, but, but Lord, uh, uh, speak to our lives. Uh, we wanna be hearers, we wanna be doers, we wanna be followers of your word, and so Lord, we ask for your help this morning. God, I pray that you would uh, quicken us, help us to receive your word, and, and uh, Lord, I ask that you'd protect us from distraction, and. And, uh, and in some cases, maybe weariness, but Lord, uh, strengthen us to receive your word. Bless us that we might be a blessing. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So here in Genesis 22, we're seeing Abraham's sacrifice and God's substitute. And before we get into Genesis 22, the key to understanding what we're seeing this morning is found in Hosea chapter 12 and verse 10. God tells us, Uh, how he speaks to his people. He says, I have also spoken by the prophets and I have multiplied visions and used similitudes by the ministry of the prophets. And we're gonna see both this morning. We're gonna see some prophecy in play, but we're gonna see a very beautiful similitude. You know, God's word is a picture book. God understands that, that, that people learn best whenever we can have comparisons. When one thing pictures correctly another thing, it will help us through association, contrast, and comparison. We're gonna gain insight into truth. And so God sets up his word this way. He uses pictures, he uses figures, uh, types, examples, similitudes in scripture. So God says he speaks through these similitudes by the ministry of the prophets. So in in Hebrews chapter 11, here's the summary on what we're gonna see in Genesis 22. Verse 17 says that by faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. Notice the phrasing, because the picture is that of God the Father not willing that any would perish, he offers his only begotten, his beloved only begotten son, that humanity might be redeemed. Christ is our substitutionary sacrifice. So, so by faith, he offers up his only begotten son, of whom it is said, it was said, that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, now watch this, verse, six, or verse 19, accounting, he's reckoning, he's believing, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. Okay, so you remember that word similitude. A similitude in Hosea chapter 12 verse 10, uh, the best way I can describe it is it means what it sounds like, similitude. Something is what? Similar. This thing is like that thing. That's a similitude. This is just like that, okay? Well, here we see that Abraham is willing to obey God and offering his son. Now, he knows that in Isaac, he's gonna be made a mighty nation. Isaac hasn't had any children yet. So what Abraham, his faith proposition is saying, God's asking that I would give this child back to him, but God is gonna resurrect him from the dead. And watch how how Hebrews 11 verse 19 puts it accounting that God was, ra- was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence, from this place, right? From whence also he received him in a figure. It's ju- a figure is just like a similitude, it's like a parable. It's the placing of one thing side by side, one thing right beside another. In other words, this thing is just like that thing. What Abraham is knowing about Isaac is God is going to resurrect him because the promises are in Isaac. Okay, anybody know where Genesis 22 is heading? What's the picture that we're gonna see? Isaac's death, his burial, his resurrection is a picture, it's a figure, it's a similitude of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, It's a beautiful picture, it's a very difficult picture. 
Uh, but man, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful truth. Uh, you know, Isaac, what we're gonna see in this passage is Isaac actually, actually doesn't end up being sacrificed. God provides himself the sacrifice. We see the ram caught in the thicket. So what's the picture there? Christ is the substitutionary sacrifice for the whole world. What did John say when he saw Jesus coming? Behold the what? The substitutionary sacrifice, right? Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sins, uh, the sin of the world. And so there it is in a nutshell. That's what we're gonna be seeing. So spy it out as we walk through this chapter. Verse one. Genesis chapter 22, verse one. And it came to pass after these things that God did, oh, here's a, here's a tough word in our Bible. God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, behold, here I am. And he said, take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest. Take your only begotten son, your beloved son, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. Okay, how many this morning believe that God was down with child sacrifice in Genesis 22? That God was actually into child sacrifice. He and Molech, right? He and Molech are buddies. Uh, you had the heathen nations sacrificing their babies, burning them alive. Um, you know, Planned Parenthood would be proud. They're sacrificing babies to Molech. Um, Molech, uh, the Babylon Bee had a really f- hilarious article about how the devil or Molech did a press conference after Roe v. Wade got overturned, you know. Uh, unfortunate times for, for Molech's sacrifice requirements. Okay, so, no, God's not into child sacrifice. He's not into baby killing. Okay, so what's going on here? Well, this is a sudden test. Test is the first blank in your notes, so you wanna get this down. This test comes here in Genesis 22, and notice the context. Uh, The first mention of the word love is in the context of picturing a, a sacrifice that illustrates John 3.16. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. He offered him a a substitutionary sacrifice. Why? Because he's not willing that humanity perishes. So in the first mention of love, it's in the context of a type, a John 3.16 picture. Thy son, thine only son. So four things here. Number one, first mention of love. Number two, this test is such, it's designed so that Abraham is to give Isaac back to God. What God gives to Abraham, Abraham is now required to give it back. Number three, it's a test that's designed to prove Abraham's faith and show Abraham that God's worthy of everything. What's Abraham been hoping and trusting for? What's Abraham's obsession been? This child of promise, this heir uh, through which God would make of him a mighty nation. So the test seems, from a human perspective, it seems unreasonable. This is the miracle child of promise. Now God's asking Abraham to literally void him out, to destroy everything that he's lived for, everything that he's wanted, everything that he has loved and longed for. Okay, so get this down in your notes. Uh, Abraham is learning what consecration means. Consecration means that God, what he gives you, he wants to control. Uh, If you're consecrated to the Lord, God has control of your life. And everything in your life, God has control of it. A lot of people say, I love the Lord, but God's not in control of anything. They're in control. So this test is designed to put Abraham at at a decision point where he's gonna decide God's worth everything. This is a test of faith. It's not a temptation to do evil, and the proof is in the fact that God stops him before the knife finds its place in Isaac. It's not a temptation to do evil, and this is very critical that we get this. Hebrews eleven seventeen says that by faith Abraham, when he was tried, when he was tried. Okay, now that's key, because that explains the word tempt that we see here in verse one of Genesis 22. Hebrews eleven seventeen says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tried, when he was tested. James chapter one, verse two tells us, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith 
So the world, your flesh and the devil, they're gonna place temptation before you and God is such a judo master, he's gonna take it and flip it and use it to test you. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. So that's what this word tempt means here in Genesis 22. See, biblically, okay, keep going in James 1. Biblically, this is the position that you have to take in terms of a trial versus a temptation. James chapter one verse 13 says, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Do you see the difference? A trial is a test, a temptation. Well, that's something that looks good, that's off the menu, something in the world that you want that's not permissible. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. Or the devil, right? Some devil is tempting you to rebellion, to sin, to satisfy self. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. That's not how it works. Now God will use those temptations to test you, but the temptation comes from you. So look at your chart, okay? A temptation comes from within, comes from the flesh, or it comes from the world or the devil. Trials, God will use, and he can even use something in that the world is trying to use to derail you. God will use it to fulfill his purpose in us. You know, Romans chapter eight tells you that all things work together for good for God's people, those who love God, who are called by his name. Uh, the good, the bad, the ugly, God will take it. He's such a judo master, he will take it and he will use it to keep maturing you and keep conforming you to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, only God. Temptations are used by Satan to bring out the worst in you, but God will use a trial to bring out the best in you. The devil tempts you to destroy you. God will test you to show you that you can stand in faith. The devil, the devil will tempt in order to cripple and kill you, to kill your faith. God will test you to strengthen and mature you. A temptation seems logical to satisfy, but it's wrong. Tests and trials always seem unreasonable to submit to, but you better do it, they're right. That's the difference between temptation and trial. First Corinthians chapter 10, uh, one of my, thank God for First Corinthians chapter 10, verses 12 through 13, it's, it's, it's a safety net, it's a reassurance. Uh, Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. Man, I, I'm, I'm facing a, a horrible temptation. Tell it to Abraham. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. Man, praise the Lord for that. Nothing I'm gonna face in this life is beyond my ability to stand in faith. Nothing that I'm gonna face is beyond the, the, the provision of God to allow me to bear it. Notice the promise in 1 Corinthians 10 isn't that God takes away the temptation. He strengthens you that you might bear it, that you might, you might persevere, that you might press on in the midst of that temptation. So number four, here is a test of devotion. God tested Abraham so that he could see if he loved God more than his son Isaac. And I phrased it that way on purpose. Um, God tested Abraham so that he could see if he loved God more than Isaac. Uh, God knows all things. Uh, Abraham needs to see that he loves God more than Isaac. John 21 verse 15, same test for Peter. So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? Do you love me more than anyone in your life? He saith unto him, yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, feed my lambs. See, we need to learn. This is a great, uh, this is a great maturing point in the life of any believer. We need to learn that we love the Lord more than anyone. You say, well, I don't. I love myself more than anyone. Well, enjoy the trials and the tests and, and uh, you, you will, you, God will keep maturing you and you will come to the place where you recognize he's worthy, he's worth being right with. He's worthy of the first of our heart, our life, and our devotion. Um, you need to learn, right? We all need to learn that we need to love him best. We need to love him most. We need to love him first in our life.
And the reason why is because God wants his best for all of his children. What's best for us? What's the very best thing for me that I could ever have in my life? If I was gonna be blessed with anything, what would that be? God in my life. You say, well, you talk about Cheryl all the time. Well, actually, no. I talk about God all the time. I use Cheryl a lot to illustrate what we're talking about the Lord, but, <laughs> right? I mean, no, God, God has to be first. God's what's best for me. Now, I mean, you know, uh, well, since I brought up Cheryl, okay, let me give you another example. <laughs> Guess what's best for Cheryl in terms of all the dudes on this planet? You know what's best for Cheryl? This guy right here. <laughs> That's what's, I want what's best for her, and I'm what's best for her. I, I, I am a jealous husband. I will have no other husbands before me. You see how that works? Uh, why? Because I'm what's best for her. She'll be most blessed if she just sticks with having me in her life. Uh, well, the same thing's true in terms of my relationship with the Lord. He wants what's best for me, and oh yeah, that's him. And the quicker I learn that, the faster I mature, the more I recognize how blessed I am. You know, at some point, you learn this primacy, this place of God, uh, the, 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 the foremost uh, need of God being foremost in your life. Uh, you learn that. I mean, that becomes a doctrine of the heart and that places you in the position where you too, like Abraham, are called the friend of God. Abraham believed God, and God counted it for him, for, to him for righteousness in Genesis 15, right? He's a believer, well, he's gotta grow, and now by Genesis 22, he is at a place of total consecration. He's willing, whatever God, whatever God asks, whatever God requires, he's, God's worth it. Okay, verse three. So immediately, right, what's the very next thing that we see? Verse three, and Abraham rose up early in the morning. He doesn't put it off until after lunch, <laughs> right? No, early in the morning, saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and clave the wood for the burnt offering and rose up and went unto the place which God had told him. And then on the third day, don't miss the picture. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young men, abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship. Watch his faith now. And come again. Who's gonna come? I and the lad will come again, right? And come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son. So now Isaac is carrying the instrument of sacrifice and he took the fire in his hand and a knife and they went both of them together. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, my father, and he said, here am I, my son. And he said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. And they came to the place which God had told him of, and Abraham built an altar there, and laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac. Okay, I read this a lot this week so that this wouldn't happen. Sorry. Can you imagine? Dads, can you imagine? bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what this did to the father at Calvary? Okay, verse 11, good news. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. And he said, lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing that thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. 
And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. Okay, I can see. Behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. You know, he was never so glad to do some sheep killing as he was in that moment. He offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. Okay, so the gospel is so clearly seen here. And here it is, verse 14. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. God provides himself a lamb, so let's just name it that, Jehovah Jireh. So what we're seeing here now is simple trust. That's your next blank. In verse three, this could not have been a harder test. There was, there was no, there's, it wasn't possible to ask for a more difficult thing, and yet there could be no more obedience, more immediate and complete and perfect than Abraham's. There's no whining. There's no arguing with God. There's no why me or God's not fair and uh, forget him. By the way, anytime somebody is whining about God not being fair or life not being fair to them, those are just stupid reasonings, right, that are used as cheap justifications for men to just go and do what they really want to anyway. People do this all the time. That's not fair, God's, you know, God didn't come through for me, so now, I have in my own mind my justification to just go live like hell, do what I want the way I want, how I want. So think about this, okay? This is a resurrection story. Resurrection is very powerful, isn't it? I mean, think about that. Resurrection is powerful. The energy that it takes to bring life out of death, well, that's an infinite expenditure of power. I mean, that's ultimate power. That, I mean, that's the only power that matters, right? to bring life out of death, that's everything. But even though, as Christians, we have the power of the resurrection, and the New Testament tells you that very clearly, we live, we are to live in the power of his resurrection, resurrection power. Man, in these last days before Christ's return, Christianity has never been more weak and pitiful and puny The resurrection is powerful and yet we're weak because crucifixion demands consecration. If you're gonna live in resurrection power, it's going to be through a life of consecration to the Lord. Crucifixion demands consecration and consecration requires passing a test. Whenever your life is on the line, whenever God's way, sure enough, looks like a hard way. That's the question on the floor. Will I do what's right even if it kills me? Will I do what's right even if it means means all will reject me? Whenever God's way looks like the hard but right way, will we live the consecrated life? Consecration requires passing uh, passing a test, going through a trial, and Christians don't wanna do that today. We want our ticket to heaven, and then we wanna live like it's heaven on earth. We don't wanna have to face any trial. We don't wanna have to face any persecution or disappointment. Christians wanna live comfortable. It's the the Laodicean lifestyle for us or nothing. See, here's our problem today, and Jesus stated it this way in Luke chapter six and verse 46. And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? No wonder Abraham is called the friend of God. He did the hard thing. Point number two, Abraham could obey because he had faith in God's promises. He knew that Isaac was gonna give him grandbabies and great-grandbabies and great-great-great-great-grandbabies. I mean, Isaac is gonna make of him a mighty nation. So he he can obey because God's gonna keep him back. I had a a weird season in my life. This is probably 10, 10 years ago or so, 10 or 12 years ago where, you know, have you ever had just like the most horrible dream and you're like, how did I even come up with that? Uh, We were hungry and so we just chopped off Seth's leg. It's a dream, okay, we didn't do this. Check him out, he's walking around, he's got ham hocks the size of Texas, okay? Maybe that's why, no, so anyway, we were like eating his leg 
And we're, my wife and I are having this conversation. It's like, well, yeah, we have to just eat the whole kid and then he'll resurrect and then we'll eat him again. That's how we're gonna make it, you know? And he'll just keep coming back. And in the process of us having this conversation about eating our kid, I got like, wait a minute, something's really wrong. And Priestley's like, what? We're eating our kid? Uh, uh, the kid is in the pot. I mean, what? I woke up just, <laughs> just freaked completely out. And then I'm like, oh, it was a dream. Thank God it was a dream. I had to get up and go into Seth's room and snuggle. <laughs> I mean, like, I try not to wake him up, but I, I couldn't believe, I had that dream a couple times. It's just, how did that get in my head? That is like the most horrible thing ever. What a waking nightmare for Abraham. You get it? I mean, what a nightmare for him. And he does not hesitate. He moves forward in faith because he knows what God has promised. Look at verse 12, Genesis chapter 21. Just go back one chapter. God said unto Abraham, let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad and because of the bondwoman. In all that Sarah saith unto thee, hearken unto her voice, for in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That's still burning, you know, over 20 years later, that's burning in Abraham's heart. In Isaac shall thy seed be called. So you get to Genesis 22 and verse five. What does he say to the young men? You stay here with our ride, and I and the lad will go up, will go yonder and worship and come again. Both me and Isaac are coming back. So he's full of faith, and again, we saw this in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19. He was reckoning, he was believing, he was accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. Okay, brothers, sisters, if you're gonna be the friend of God, if you're gonna move forward in faith, you have to take God at his word. You have to reckon it to be true over your life. According to your faith, be it unto you. If you don't believe God, well then you're gonna get what your faith demands, nothing. <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, you have to reckon the promises of God rightly. Too many people lose the reality of God's word over their life. They don't see God show up in their circumstances because they're full of unbelief. You remember one of the things that blew Jesus' mind was unbelief. And he couldn't do many miracles because of the unbelief of his people. What was the hindering factor? Is it the power of God, Christ's ability to work miracles? No. It's the, it's the spiritual principle that he abides by. According to your faith, be it unto you. We've got so many of God's people just going through life powerless because they're clueless regarding faith. Notice in verse four, it's a three-day journey. They're traveling roughly 50 miles. Why is it a three-day journey? Why do they have to go to this place of sacrifice that's so far away? Well, we're gonna see. The reason why is this sacrifice has to perfectly foreshadow Calvary. It's got to perfectly picture Calvary. Okay, so from the moment God says take him, okay, he rises up early the next morning and they go. It's a three-day journey. So for three days, his son has been, let me pull out my air quotes here, Isaac has been dead to him. For three days, he knows his son is dead. See the picture? For three days... Isaac is dead to him, and then it's not until God shows the ram caught in the thicket that now Isaac is now alive to him. You see that? So for three days, Isaac is dead to him on the third day. Uh, God resurrects him. Isaac wasn't a child at this point. He's at least in his early 20s. He may be as old as 33 years of age. That's where my money's at. It makes the picture more perfect. Nowhere in scripture does it say that. I'm just, gonna, I'm just gonna say it. He's 33. He's a stud. He's carried enough wood to consume his body up a mountain. Okay. Isaac would have run, he would have won the strongman competition. You know, he could just show up at um, CrossFit and just kick booty, okay. So there it is, he's not a child. He could have easily overpowered his father. He could have broken, this old man's gonna bind him to the wood that he carried up. <laughs> no way, that's not gonna happen. No, he is, don't miss the picture, Isaac is what kind of sacrifice? He's a, he's a willing sacrifice. He's completely submitted to the will of his father. Is Isaac excited about being burned up? No, 
but he's a willing sacrifice. Both of them together go up this mountain. In other words, both together are in agreement. Amos 3.3 says, can two walk together except they be agreed? Isaac is in, he's down. Whatever God demands, he's consecrated as well. So what's the picture? Luke 22, 42. Father, not my will, but thine be done. That's the picture here. J. Sidlow Baxter says it this way. The one thing in Isaac's life which stirs our admiration is his amazing act of submission and self-abnegation on Mount Moriah. He was then old enough and strong enough to have resisted, to have resisted the attempt of his father to bind him but at 25 years of age, when a young man clings to life and reaches to the future, Isaac consented to die. Um, there it is, beautiful picture. The implements of sacrifice, okay, what do they have? Well, enough wood to consume his body. The wood picture is what? The cross of Calvary, right? Christ too bore, he also bore the wood of his sacrifice. The fire will picture divine judgment. You know, God's anger burns against sin. Our God is a consuming fire. He is a righteous judge. Uh, from Genesis chapter three, verse 24, to Revelation chapter 20, verse 15, God is burning against sin. Hebrews 12, 19 tells us our God is a consuming fire. Isaiah 33, verse 14 says, who shall dwell with devouring fire? The knife is the instrument to drain Isaac's blood in his life. In John 19, verse 34, one of the soldiers pierced, uh, with a spear pierced his, pierced Jesus' side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. So we've got the wood, the fire, the knife, the altar. You know, in verse nine, Isaac doesn't make the altar. Uh, his father does. Just like Jesus didn't make the cross. Uh, Jesus had to carry that cross he was a willing participant, he was a willing sacrifice, but ultimately, uh, look, at, look at God's perspective on Christ's death. Jesus was the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the earth. Did I give you the cross references on that? Revelation 13, eight? Is that in your notes? Yeah, Revelation 13, eight, First Peter chapter one. He's the, he's the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the earth. That's God's perspective on it. Isaac didn't make the altar, just like Jesus didn't make his cross. Um, why? Well, because he's a perfect picture of the Lord Jesus Christ in this moment. Verse nine, he submits himself to being bound, just like Christ was bound to the cross with nails. So all that's missing from Isaac's perspective was the sacrifice itself. Uh, if it's not him, what's it gonna be? Well, who was it? Well, check out Genesis 22, verse 14. How does Abraham summarize what just took place? Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah Jireh. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. What was seen? Well, okay, this is an amazing statement that, that Abraham makes. In the, in the mount of the Lord, it what will be seen? Is that past, present, or future tense? Look at verse 14. What will be seen, it's, huh? Well, let's read it together, Genesis 22, 14. Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah Jireh, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen, past, present, or future. It's future, it's future tense. Something incredible is gonna be seen here. In the mount of the Lord, it shall be seen. Get this down in your notes. Abraham knew he was acting out prophecy. He knew. This is why he said God will provide himself a sacrifice. Jesus confirms it. Jesus said in John chapter eight, verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Abraham knew. He understood many things concerning the coming of Christ. So Abraham offers Isaac on Mount Moriah, in, right here in chapter 22. This is Mount Moriah. This is in Jerusalem. It's at the place where the temple would be built. It's at the place of temple sacrifice. Uh, you don't believe me? Well, check out God's word on it. Second Chronicles chapter three, verse one says, Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem in Mount Moriah 
where the Lord appeared unto David his father in the place that David had prepared in the threshing floor of Oran, the Jebusite. So in the place where Abraham is willing to sacrifice Isaac, this will be the place of sacrifice moving forward. So what you have here in this story in Genesis 22 is Isaac is dying figuratively, right? This is, what, this is the figure that we're receiving. Isaac died figuratively in the place where the temple sacrifices would be offered. Those temple sacrifices were offered in preparation. They were looking forward to Christ coming and in the same general location where Christ dies literally. So Isaac dies figuratively in the same place where Christ will die, in, a general, in the same general area. It's, it's actually just a little bit over from there. This is where Christ himself would die literally. Now this ram that they find bound in the thicket, this replaces Isaac, doesn't it? Okay, so check this out in your notes. The ram offered in Isaac, Isaac's place pictures the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Right, in verse 13, this ram was offered what? In the stead of his son. Isn't that how Christ was offered for us? Wasn't he offered in our stead, in the place of us? So Abraham identified literally who would take Isaac's place. Uh, verse eight says, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. That's why John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus in John chapter one, verse 29, he says, the next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and said, behold, the ram caught in the thicket, the one offered in our stead. Behold, the lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. What's the picture? The picture is substitutionary atonement. Someone has to atone, over our, atone God's wrath over our sin. And if you do it, it's gonna take you an eternity in hell. If you're gonna pay the, the wages of your sin, the penalty of your sin, your sin will separate you from a holy God and you will spend eternity in a place reserved for Satan and his rebellion. Uh, if, you, if, if, you're gonna, if you're gonna live your life in this world of your father the devil, right? If you're gonna, I mean, it, spiritually, this is the way it works. Everybody joins their father forever. Spiritually, there are only two families in the Bible. Jesus said in John chapter eight and verse 44, year of your father the devil, and what are you doing, right? It's his lust, it's his agenda that you're tracking with. That's why you're trying to kill me. Satan was a murderer from the beginning. Okay, so spiritually, you're only gonna see two fathers. There's either Satan or Jehovah. And spiritually, everybody joins their father forever. Satan's eternal address will be the lake of fire. That's where he's gonna end up, Satan and the angels who rebel. And those who follow them spiritually will join them for eternity. God's address for eternity is Mount Zion. And those who enter into God's family through the new birth, through being born again, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, their spiritual address for eternity will be with the Father. That's how it works. Okay, so at some point, your sin debt has to be paid. God's not willing that you perish. This is why Christ was given a substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf. God is not willing that any would perish. So God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting, right, eternal life. Okay, you either pay for your sin or the substitute does. Man, thank God for Jesus. <laughs> Thank God for substitutionary atonement. Christ is our Passover. He was sacrificed for us. So Isaac, here he is bound to the altar. He looks over and praise the Lord. There's a ram caught in the thicket. Ask Isaac if he believes in substitutionary atonement, atonement right? Does he believe in substitutionary sacrifice? Absolutely he does. It saved his bacon. <laughs> Verse 10 is the key, okay? What's, 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 what's Abraham willing to do? Read it again. Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. God can't let that happen. He stops him in verse 11. But get this down in your notes. Real worshipers. I mean, here we are, Genesis 22. The first mention of the word worship requires total consecration. The first mention of the word love requires total consecration. 
Real worshipers of God hold back nothing from him. Nothing is your blank. They're complete givers. All that God asks, they give it, and they trust that he'll provide and enable them to do so. This first mention of worship in verse five is in the context of total sacrifice. Abraham is willing to give the whole of his life. His whole life, his heart, all of his love is wrapped up in this boy. And he gives it to the Lord. God says it this way in Exodus chapter 20. He requires it. God spake all these words saying, I am the Lord thy God which brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them for I the Lord thy God am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me and showing mercy unto the thousands, right? Unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. God says I gotta be first in your life. You're gonna love me before all. Real worshipers of God hold back nothing. Abraham doesn't withhold his son, so also God the Father. Think about it. I mean, who gave everything first in your relationship with the Lord? Who was first in giving everything? It was God. He gave his only begotten, his beloved son. God the Father offers God the Son as a substitutionary atonement for your sin, your wickedness and rebellion. Romans 8, 32 says, he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, that God loved me that much, that he was willing that the Trinity be, I don't know what the right word is for it, I can't come up with another word for it, but for the Trinity to be in that, you remember what Christ said on the cross of Calvary? He says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? There's a rupture that takes place. There is a breaking that takes, God allows himself to be killed. So here God as the Father offers up God as the Son to be my sacrifice, he's literally my sacrifice over my sin. He gave everything. He that spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Here's what I surmise from this passage. Jesus is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. God knows what it's gonna cost him in order to have Adam back from sin. He knows. And he knows what he's gonna have to go through and in his mind, it's already, already done. And so there's a sense in which he wants to see what the return on his investment, he just wants to, he wants to experience it. He wants to have it, he wants to look at it. And he's willing to allow Abraham to live as a Christian, to live as a totally consecrated follower, uh, to be his friend, to enter into the fellowship of his suffering. Genesis 22, verse 12, he says, lay not thy hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him, for now I know that thou fearest God, seeing that thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son from me. Think about, I mean fathers especially, think about what this cost Abraham. And then think about what this cost God, that he was willing to allow Jesus to be our sacrifice. So here's the key, get this down in your notes. The only way to respond properly to God's call for consecration over your life, it's by an act of faith. In other words, let me say it this way, your consecration is measured by what you keep for yourself. So many Christians say, yeah, I love God, but, and then they keep most of their life back for themselves. Uh, There's so many areas and corners of their life where God is not allowed to have control. Uh, They want their ticket to heaven but they want to live their life their way and on their terms. But the other thing I want you to see is God will not suffer you. He will not allow you to be tempted above that which you are able. God will with the temptation make a way for you to bear that, right? And so with that, God's timing is always right. Uh, He's never gonna allow you to sink. Lord, save me. (laughs) Takes Peter's hand, right? God's never gonna let you get in over your head. 
His timing is always right. He stops Abraham before it's too late. He stops Abraham from the horror of having killed his own son. Verse 15, last section here, the solemn truth that we see. Verse 15 says, and the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time and said, by myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee and multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. So many of God's people today, they're not enjoying the blessing of God because you're out there, you're too busy wasting your life trying to be and to try to get, try to produce your own blessings. (laughs) Man, at the point where we just surrender and, 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 and give, yield our lives consecrated to the Lord. Man, every day, right? I have to go through this process. Okay, God, my life is not mine, it's yours. Uh, help me to live the crucified life. Help me to enter into the fellowship of your suffering. Because if I, if I run this day, I'm gonna try to spend it blessing myself, being, being the source of blessing, and I'm just not a very, all-powerful God. I'm, I'm, I'm a real pitiful excuse for an om, omnipotent being. Uh, at some point, we yield ourselves in consecration to the Lord, and then we let him, right? God now lives his life through us. In thee shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. God's gonna bless him mightily, and the proof of it is Christ. The proof of it is the Genesis 3.15 prophecy fulfilled in the Messiah. Verse 19, Abraham returned unto his young men and they rose up and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham dwelt at Beersheba and it came to pass after these things that it was told Abraham saying, behold, Milcah, she hath also born children unto thy brother Nahor. And then it lists the extended family in the remainder of the chapter. What I want you to see as we wrap up chapter 22 is this. God rewards sacrifice, doesn't he? He rewards consecration. And so with that, you'll hear the old timers say it this way, um, they learn, right? Everybody learns. It's impossible to outgive God. Uh, When you are willing, you present your life a living sacrifice, um, what you're gonna find is the blessings far outweigh whatever that costs you in terms of your life in the flesh. God then reconfirms his covenant, his covenant with Abraham. Uh, He gave it to him. We saw it uh, the beginning in chapter 12. We saw it outlined in chapter 15 and 17. He says again that his descendants are gonna be like the stars and the sand on the seashore, like the dust of the earth, and that his descendants will be victorious over their enemies. And the reality is, is you see that. I mean, you saw it by Joshua in the conquest. You saw it by Jesus in his conquest. You'll see it again by Jesus in his conquest in in Revelation chapter 19. We saw it 2,000 years ago in his conquest over sin, the enemy of Satan. Colossians chapter two outlines that Christ delivered us from spiritual wickedness in high places. You see it even today. you know, since, since uh, the, the Jewish state came to be in 1948, uh, the, the goal of the Arab nations surrounding it is that, that Israel, right, the Jewish people would be driven into the sea. And over and over again, um, God's people are victorious over their enemies. They're a chosen people. I want us to see a lesson from Genesis chapter 22. Uh, From this chapter out of Abraham's life, uh, we have to read James to get the perspective on it. James chapter two, turn in your Bibles to James chapter two. And what James tells you about this story, right, James teaches you that true faith always proves itself by how we live in obedience to God. How we live in obedience to his call over our life. And so I don't want us to miss this. James chapter two, verse 14 is where he starts. He says, what does it profit, my brethren, 
Though a man say he hath faith and have not works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, let's look at somebody, let's look at the example of somebody that's getting ready to die from starvation. And one of you say unto them, depart in peace, be ye warm and filled. Right? Give them a point of faith to reckon in their life. So you're starving to death. Go away. I, I know you came here for a sandwich. Go away. Depart in peace. Be warm and filled. Notwithstanding, ye give them not those things which are needful to the body. What doth it profit? What's his point? He's asking, frankly, it's a rhetorical question. This dude's starving. You don't give him a sandwich. What are they going to do? They're going to keep starving. Okay, now we can compare scripture with scripture and we find out that what we also need to do is help people find a job. If you're not willing to work, maybe you don't want a sandwich. Maybe you're on a diet. Okay, so there it is. Okay, so, so this is the example that he's giving. <clears throat> Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. Yea, a man may say thou hast faith and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. They're not living in faith. Verse 20, but I mean, they know that there's a God. They're just not submitted to him. They don't obey him. But wilt thou, O man, or I'm sorry, but wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by his works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and sent them out another way. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Now, you need to rightly divide your Bible, okay? Paul, the apostle Paul, is the apostle to the Gentiles. He is the apostle that helps us keep our doctrine straight. And he tells us, I mean, in the Pauline epistles, we find that all scripture is profitable for doctrine. So from Genesis to Revelation, you can make doctrinal application to the church, but you do it through the lens of Pauline theology. Romans to Philemon keeps you straight doctrinally, Genesis to Revelation. Is everybody with me on that? Okay, how are we saved? How is a person born again and saved, justified before the Lord? Are we saved, are we justified through works? No, the Bible can't be more clear. We're saved by God's grace through faith in the gospel, and the Bible's explicit in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Uh, we're saved by God's grace. Okay, we're saved, it's by, it's by faith in the gospel, by the grace of God that we're saved, and, and it's explicit, it's not of works. We're not saved by works, why? Because nobody gets to brag about what they did in order to obtain God's favor. It's not of works, lest any man, no bragging, no boasting in heaven. Okay, so, um, most people never make it in Ephesians 2 to verse 10, okay? So now, in James, there is a tribulation application, okay? In, in the tribulation context, after the rapture of the church, the Antichrist and his kingdom is saying, you have to take the mark of the beast, you have to worship the Antichrist, and if you don't do that, uh, we're gonna turn off your banking, you're not gonna be able to buy or sell, and we're coming for you. We're gonna, you're gonna lose your head. You're not gonna just lose your bank account, you're gonna lose your head. Okay. What happens during the time of tribulation when somebody says, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Antichrist says, well, you better start believing in me, or else, and they're like, okay. And they take the mark of the beast. Now, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but I just took them, well, Revelation chapter 14 tells you those who take the mark of the beast, there's no exceptions, they go to hell. Okay, in a tribulation context, faith without works is what? It's dead. I mean, Revelation is very clear. You have to endure to the end to be saved. Okay, in the church age, it doesn't work that way. In the tribulation context, you have to overcome to be saved, right? You, you I mean, it doesn't matter what the Antichrist says. You stay in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and if they kill you, they kill you. Okay, here, it's not like that. We're already in Christ, he's our overcomer, <laughs> right? 
Uh, we're already at the end. We're seated together in the heavenly places in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see that? Okay, so get this down in your notes. Abraham, again, I want you to see this as a Christian in the church age. Abraham was saved by God's grace through faith alone when he believed God's word in Genesis 15. That's when God counted it to him for righteousness. That's what the scripture says. But Genesis 22 is proof of his faith. So get this down in your notes. Salvation is by grace grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ's atonement alone. But salvation always produces obedience. Somebody can say they're saved, but if no obedience comes out of their life, you can't prove they're saved. How we live now is proof of our faith. Do you see that? So that's why Ephesians 2, eight through nine tells us how salvation works, but verse 10 tells you what it produces, right? We are his workmanship created unto good works. Your good works don't save you, but if you're saved, those good works are gonna come out of you. Does that make sense? And that's the picture that we're seeing in Abraham's life. He believed God, Genesis chapter 15. Go out there, count the stars. That's what, that's what your family is gonna be like. It's gonna be that big. And Abraham's like, yes, sir, I believe it with all my heart. And then God reckoned him righteous in that moment. Okay, so it changes his relationship with the Lord, doesn't it? Now what happens? Well, you, Abraham, I want you to give everything. Okay, you're worth it. I want the whole of your life. I want complete consecration. It's gonna be a tough test. Abraham's, man, I don't even have to study. God, you're everything. And you keep every promise you've ever given. And if this boy dies, you'll raise him again. I can never lose what you've promised me. You see how that works? Man, what an incredible, beautiful picture, Genesis 22. I'm begging you, brothers and sisters, right now, and I know some of you, you have something to do to set up for the next service, and you think it's really important. And you, during this time, that is your responsibility in this service, You'll, you'll jump ship like raps. I mean, it's like rats jumping a, 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 a sinking ship. Uh, don't be a rat, turn to your neighbor and tell them, do not be a rat. Now, when every head is bowed and every eye is closed, some of you, you're like, if I don't go right now, I'm gonna pee my pants. Well, by all means, <laughs> don't sink the ship, okay, flee, okay? Uh, it's the church age, it's grace, not, not law, okay? The principle is, this is the part of the service that's your responsibility, okay? You're gonna give, you're gonna return worship back to the Lord, you're gonna give praise, you're gonna respond in prayer. Some of you, you're gonna, you're gonna dedicate your life to Christ, maybe for the first time in your life. You're gonna, you're gonna believe on the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you're gonna be born again this morning. It's an incredible thing, okay? I gotta go get a donut so I can get a good seat at the next class. That's not what we're here for. Now, after, after you're dismissed, go get the donut, go get the good seat in your class. But this is actually your part of the worship service. Is everybody with me? Okay, so now some of you, we're gonna bow our heads, we're gonna humble ourselves, and a few of you are gonna have to get up and go because nature is calling. It's okay, go, Nobody, it's a judgment-free zone, amen? Right? Anybody that has to leave right now, it's, it's all cool. But some of you need to grow up and you need to learn how a church service works. This is your time to participate. Does that make sense? Okay, so turn to your neighbor and tell them, ready for your part? This is your part, okay? This is your responsibility. Let's bow our heads and let's uh, acknowledge the Lord right now. How many would say, pastor, pray for me? Because... Man, I've never lived Genesis 22. I've never seen the reality of it in my life. And I need Christ to be my substitute to satisfy God's wrath over my sin. Pastor, please, would you pray for me? I need Christ in my life. I need to be born again. I need to be saved. I want to spend my forever with him. Is there anybody in this service that would say, Pastor, please pray for me? I'm not sure I'm saved. I need Christ in my life. Can I see your hands? Is there anybody like that in this service? Yes, ma'am. Anybody else? Please pray for me. I don't know that I'm in that substitutionary work that Christ did. I don't know that, that I've received that for myself. Anybody else? Pastor, please pray for me. How many would say, yes sir, I see it, okay. Anybody else? I'll just wait another second. 
please pray for me. I, I need Christ in my life. I need to be born again. How many would say, Pastor, please pray for me? Um, God's allowed me to go through test after test to prove consecration, uh, to give me opportunities to see my need for a consecrated life, and I keep living my life for myself. I need to surrender my clock. I need to surrender my life to Christ. I need to rededicate it to the Lord. Pastor, would you pray for me? Let me see your hands. So there's a number of us in that boat. Okay, I'm gonna pray, and then we're gonna worship, and if God's dealing with your heart, just come forward. We wanna help you, all right? Father, we love you, Lord, and God, thank you uh, for the gentleman and the lady who are saying uh, they don't know that they're born again. They don't know that they're saved, and, and so God, we're trusting that today will be, like your word says, today is the day of salvation. Uh, Lord, we're trusting that right now that, that uh, souls would be saved, and so Lord, would you pour out your spirit and conviction Lord, would you take the excuses that the enemy gives? Uh, there's always tomorrow, uh, later, uh, or you know, the scenarios that have to be resolved first. Uh, Lord, do, would you just sweep all of that away? And would you bring a convicting work to bear in both cases? And then God, for so many that are saying, uh, you're not first in their life. Lord, help us to see that you're worthy. You're worth being right with, that you're worth us living the crucified life, a life of consecration. Lord, I ask that for myself first and foremost every day. It seems like I have to, I have to relearn those lessons. And, and Lord, thank you for, thank you for the, just the classroom, the classroom work that you do in all of our lives. Lord, thank you for showing us that you're what's best for us, that you're what we need. Thank you for showing us the areas of our life where we've not surrendered control. And then God, give us grace to do that today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.